0: Oh Let's go right into the meditation. great number of meditation manuals in the Buddhist tradition. At the very beginning it states, and now sit upon a comfortable cushion. And of course a cushion is comfortable if and only if you're comfortable while sitting on it. So whether you're in the supine position or in the sitting position, for the practice of shamatha, the ability to set your body at ease in a posture of comfort is indispensable. Unnecessary pain is simply a distraction. So set your body at ease, in stillness, in a posture of vigilance, Continue this relaxation process with every out Relaxing, releasing excess muscle tension in the body. Which, of course, is very difficult to do if you are in pain. Release the breath, release thoughts with every out as you settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. And as we've done before, settle your mind in its natural state, relaxed, still, and clear. Throughout the course of the session, periodically check up with your faculty of introspection on your body, particularly if you're sitting upright. See that there is a posture of balance here. Your face may may, may face directly forwards, or you may slightly incline your head, but it's important that you do not dip the head down, let alone tilt to the left or the right. The spine should be straight. Our primary benefit of this particular shamatha practice of mindfulness of breathing is that it, for many people, is the most effective way to calm, to subdue the obsessive and compulsive flow of thought. So to to facilitate this, let's return to the practice of directing the attention to the rise and fall of the abdomen. Again, to the best of our ability, maintaining an ongoing flow of mindfulness. Engage with the ongoing flow of sensations of the rise and fall of the apple. Now an auxiliary technique that is practiced actually in all schools of Buddhism, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, the Indo-Tibetan tradition, for mindfulness of breathing is counting the breaths. As long as you're still prone to coarse excitation, in which you get caught up in thoughts and completely disengage your attention from the object of meditation, counting the breaths may be helpful. There are various techniques, so let's practice one that quite a few people have found it helpful, and that is at the very end of the inhalation, just before exhalation begins. Mentally, very briefly, count one. As the breath flows out, maintain a conceptual silence releasing any thoughts that come up. Continue that non-conceptual flow of mindfulness as the breath flows in until you come to the very end of inhalation, just before the next out breath, and count two, very briefly, succinctly. In this way, count one count at the end of each inhalation, you may count 1 through ten, one through 10. Or you may simply continue counting as you wish. But between counts, let your mind be as silent as possible. So the non-conceptuality is interrupted only by these brief staccato counts, like speed bumps on a road, to slow down any rumination that may have come in. So experiment with the counting. You may find it helpful just periodically. Counting maybe just one through five or one through ten, and then stop counting and go back to the practice alone. You may find it helpful on a regular basis to calm that flow of rumination. Or you may really not find it helpful. You may find that it clutters your meditation, interrupts the flow of mindfulness. So only you can determine this for yourself. Counting of breath is not good for everyone, but it can be helpful. So see for yourself the extent to which this auxiliary practice assists you in the practice of mindfulness of breathing. Again, draw a clear distinction between the stillness of your awareness resting in its own place and the movements of the breath, the tactile sensations coming and going. So here's one question that is relevant for all of us here, and I think also for people listening by way of podcasts. It starts with a statement, and that is, I was recently at a Vipassana retreat, and the meditation practice there had a strong emphasis on pain. Actually, the abbot said that pain is the only door to nirvana, and that true meditation is one that that arouses pain as a vehicle, he said that a comfortable meditation will never lead to meditation. Hence, they discouraged any practices, like lying, lying down, stretching, or yoga, that would ease pain. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Gee, can you possibly guess? Uh, I think this person really missed his calling. He should have been an American football coach. No pain, no gain. You know? uh, it's terribly misleading advice. I think it's almost sadistic. But more importantly, it's completely contrary to the Buddhist teachings, and I'll demonstrate that. So I don't want to have a debate with this person. I don't know. I don't know what it is, and I have no interest in debating with him. I'll let him debate with the Buddha. I think it's better. And so it's very well known that the Buddha, after he set out, Gautama, when he set out from his home, he devoted himself to six years of pain. That's what it was. It was asceticism. It was star. It was, it was fasting. It was ascetic practices pain upon pain upon pain. He did it for six years. He demonstrated to the world that he was very macho. And he also demonstrated to himself that that was only damaging to the health. It made him weak. And because the body was weak, he found his mind also was not serviceable. And so then, thanks to a young lady who came to his assistance, he took some rice and some curd or some yogurt, restored his health, and then he recalled an experience he'd had spontaneously when, when, he was, when he was a youngster. And that was a very famous story. When his father was out doing a ritual plowing of the field, his father being a king, and young, the young prince, Gautama, was sitting under the shade of a rose apple tree, and he spontaneously achieved shamatha. He just sat there and, boom, slipped right into shamatha. He said, I achieved the first jhana. In the Buddha's own teachings, he didn't draw a distinction between the threshold to the first jhana and the actual state of the first jhana. That distinction, I think, is very useful, appears in the, in the Theravada commentaries, and the Mahayana commentaries, but you don't find it in the Pali Canon. So for simplicity's sake, we can say as a youth, he just spontaneously achieved shamatha, imbued with, and he described it, imbued with a sense of bliss and well-being. Right. And so now here is Gautama, at the age of 35, having just gone through six years of really arduous, arduous painful practice. He recalled this blissful state of samadhi that he had spontaneously slipped slipped into, and the thought arose to his mind, might that be the way to liberation? And then the answer came right back to him, yes, it is. He swiftly re-achieved the first jhana, and then he sat under the bodhi tree, and he achieved enlightenment. There are no references to his going through great, arduous, painful experiences after his six years of pain, when he actually found the middle way, it wasn't that. So that's just for starters. okay. Secondly, when the Buddha was first t- turning a wheel of dharma and sadhana with his five former companions, he simply taught the Four Noble Truths. At the conclusion of his discourse, one of those five disciples immediately achieved nirvana. His name was Kondanya. Kondanya, and I referred to him, I think, just yesterday. And the, but- and the Buddha recognized that they said, Kondanya knows, Kondanya knows. And that was, he was with jubilation. There was no reference to Man, did he suffer before he got the realization. It wasn't there at all. There's no reference to that at all. It seems extremely impossible, plausible that while the Buddha was giving this discourse, he was experiencing a lot of pain. So I challenge anybody who believes that, show me anywhere in the Pali Canon, or for that matter, any classic Theravada treatises or other treatises that makes that statement. I don't believe it sh- you'll find it anywhere. It's basically people who never learn the lesson of the first six years of the Buddha's austerities. And it happens again and again and again. In East Asian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism it happens, and Theravada Buddhism it happens. They just look like they didn't get it. And it was the first thing the Buddha said. Not that. Not avoid the extremes of luxury and self-indulgence, and avoid the extremes of just pain for pain's sake. Austerity for austerity's sake. So there it is. Now, the Buddha did say that samadhi arises from bliss. That he said. He gave tremendous emphasis on the importance of achieving jhana, especially the first one, which is imbued with bliss, which becomes your basis for practicing vipassana. These people are practicing vipassana with no basis in jamata. Now is there a grain of truth in this terribly misleading advice? And the answer is yes, there usually is. And the grain of truth is that in the course of your practice, if you're truly intent on achieving liberation, is it bound to happen that adversities will arise, difficulties will arise? Almost certainly. I don't know, and they often say in the Tibetan tradition, nobody ever has an easy ride to enlightenment. Of course, challenges, adversities, difficulties, of course they're going to arise. That's why we have this whole this eight-week retreat of transforming adversity into the path, felicity into the path, learning how to be spiritual alchemists, so that we transmute physical pain, psychological pain, and so forth and so on, so that it all becomes grist for the mill. But to take that truth that we really need to learn to understand the reality of suffering, the, cor- the sources of suffering, and transmute the difficulties that have come our way to take that very true statement, and then to re- reduce that down to the notion that uh, yoga is bad because it might feel, make you feel better. Well, that's just dumb. I'm sorry. and That's why I didn't mention who this is. I didn't mention the country, because um, I don't want to pick on any person. That's Not my, not my style. But if somebody says something terribly misleading, then I will, I will refute it. And that's what I'm doing right now. So let's go to the Theravada Commentary. So once again, in the Pali Canon, there's no reference to that at all. That statement, he made it all up by himself or bad teachers that he had, I'm sorry. But in terms of the Buddhist teachings, you don't find any vestige of that. You do find an enormous emphasis on the importance of Ichimijana, which the people who are just going just directly to Vipassana ignore. So I don't know how that's compatible with the Buddhist teachings, Because it's shila samadhi prajna, not just pajna. It's shila samadhi, and samadhi is shamatha. So how so many people are skipping that, not only in the Theravada, but the East Asian Chan and Zen traditions and the Tibetan tradition, I have to say, boggles my mind. Because it's not like one needs to be you know, brilliant to figure this out. You kind of have to have an introductory one, one week course in Buddhism, and you'll learn this is part of the, the fourth noble truth of the path it's Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, and he actually meant all three. You know, So you can see some passion coming up from me because it really harms people. It really does harm people. Now let's go to the Theravada because this is coming ostensibly, falsely, out of the Theravada tradition. One of the greatest classics in the whole Theravada tradition is called the Vimuthi Magha by an Arhat Upatissa. Now after the Buddha, you don't really have many higher authorities than Arhat. And so, and this is one of the great classics written oh, almost about two thousand years ago. And there, Upatissa says that among the four postures—sitting, walking, lying down, and standing—he says that for those who are more inclined to craving and attachment, just in terms of disposition, those people should spend more time walking and standing. People who are more inclined to hostility, anger, hatred, and so forth—they should spend—they should be emphasizing sitting and lying down. He didn't say find which find which posture is the most painful and hang out there. <laughs> really, that is a laughable statement, you know. Well, then then let then us go to the greatest commentary in the entire Theravada tradition by general consensus, and that is the Visuddhimagga, the Path of Purification, by the greatest most authoritative commentator for the whole tradition from the fifth century of the Common Era, Buddha Buddhagosa, Path of Purification, and he says among the four postures. He said, adopt the one that is most effective for developing concentration. He did not say, adopt the one that you find most painful. You know. So, then we go to the Tibetan tradition, and as I commented right at the beginning of that session, it says, sit on a comfortable position. He didn't say one that's filled, that's layered with broken glass, barbed wire. You know. They somehow skipped that part. And so it's just, frankly, it's common sense. Now, for shamatha, again, if your body is shouting at you because your, ne- your knees are blowing out, your back is painful, and so forth, how is that to be viewed as anything other than a distraction? Again, the Buddha said samadhi arises from bliss. Okay? Now, again, let's find a grain of truth in this. If you're practicing vipassana, And for example, you're practicing Vipassana on the body, Kaya Satipatthana, the close application of mindfulness to the body, or Vedana Satipatthana, the close application of mindfulness to feelings. And the feelings are simply pleasure, pain, and indifference as they arise in the body and as as they arise in the mind. See, if if that's your practice, and these are noble practices, they do lead to liberation. And while practicing this, practicing authentic uh, Vipassana on a basis of sila, ethics, on a basis of samadhi, preferably at least the first jhana, if having, having that sound basis of vipassana, which very few people have, uh, if pain should arise in the body, then this is grist for the mill. You, you seek to understand it. Understand what are the factors of origination? What are the factors of disillusion? Is it permanent, impermanent? You know What is the impact of observing it on the feelings themselves? And that likewise goes for mental suffering, distress, sadness, disappointment, and so forth, when really is seeking to understand the nature of the first noble truth, the reality of suffering. So that's very, very useful. But do you go out of your way to make yourself miserable, physically or mentally? That's really masochism or sadism. So it's really terribly incompatible with the Buddhist teachings. And so this is why it was worth five minutes. It's really wrong teaching. you know. It's an, and it's not a matter of, oh, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist, but those people over there in Theravada. It's just not true for any tradition in Buddhism. And he couldn't have made that more clear. So anybody believe that? Great, send me an email. Show me the source in the Buddhist teachings, or anybody with some authority, which this person does not have, that says, you know, there's no way without taking on a lot of pain, and that yoga's bad. Good grief! Shall I read that again? It's just so preposterous. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah, don't lie down. That's good. Yeah. No, don't lie down. Terrible idea, no stretching (laughs) (laughs) and no yoga. Okay, the you know sometimes the word nonsense is a little bit too weak in Tibetan, and I often use the BS word, but I think the German word just really captures it. Quatsch. It's really quatsch, you know. It's really but yeah, the English is really BS, but you know, quatsch will do, and it's not vulgar. Okay, that's quatsch. So let's get back to the practice. Ethics is most important. And on that basis, develop balance of the body and mind. Make the mind serviceable. And arouse from within that joyousness of the mind that then is your samadhi platform for practicing vipassana and utterly liberating your mind and bringing joy to others. I'll bet if I had a snapshot of the of this abbot who said that. I'll bet this is what his face looks like. I've seen a lot of them like that. Grim, you know, Buddhism is not grim. The emphasis on the reality of suffering is so that we can understand it, so that we can be liberated from it, not so that we, we can grovel in it or celebrate pain. It's a very important point. And I'm finished. <laughs> <coughs> oh lasso! In terms of mindfulness of breathing, anything <laughs> coming up right now, or should we head off to our rooms and? and frolic in the, in the fields of meditation. <laughs> Enjoy your morning. I'll see you this afternoon.